This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. But to begin with, uh, this is just a, a tragic story in so many different ways. This past weekend saw, well, a good Samaritan who tried to break up a fight in a city area downtown right by a convenience store, and he was shot and killed. Yosef Al-Hanzwai is uh, the 19-year-old that we're speaking of here right now. And uh, although we're starting to get some details about what may have happened, there's still a, not a, a number of gaps to be filled in here. And, and a number of questions, I think, that need to be answered about how this happened, why this happened, and frankly, how it was treated, which is another wrinkle to this that we're just finding out about over the last few hours. Joking us to try to put some uh, light on this is Ross McLean, crime specialist, security expert, of course, former Toronto police officer. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Hi, Ross. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing okay, but sort of sad to, to join you on, on this story of a 19-year-old young man who's having his funeral being prepared as, as we speak. This, is, this should never have happened. I mean, here's somebody who broke in, as what we can tell, broke into an, an altercation that was going outside a variety store, tried, basically, there were a couple of guys, I guess, roughing up somebody else, and this young man decided he was going to try to intercede to try to, to, to cool things off a little bit, and he ends up getting shot, and he's dead. Yeah, let, let, let's talk a little bit about that, Bill. We've talked over the course of this year and even last year, talked about the, the amount of gunplay that's been going on, shootings that have been going on in Hamilton. The Hamilton police are, are working to get on top of it. You know, much of these uh, shootings have been uh, described by the Hamilton police as being targeted, uh, which certainly involves gangs, guns, and drugs. There is some there is some talk that this young man got in the middle of a seeing an altercation going on with the drug deal that may have been going on or some such thing, not knowing what he walked into, and he ends up shot. So, you know, the question for me, Bill, is is how are the police supposed to manage this under the current system we've got set up? Here you have this young man, a great young man by all means, walking down the street, sees something going on that is a citizen. He wanted to get involved in and intervene. He gets shot because he doesn't have the tools to deal with it, but... What would have happened to the police that were driving by had they gone up and tried to stop and intervene and talk to these people and find out who they are? Would they get a complaint lodged against them for speaking to someone? I mean, where's the, where's the carding information that may have been on these two frickin' frack guys who shot this young man? I mean, you have a description of one guy with a ponytail, the other guy balding in their 20s. I suspect that in days of old, police would know exactly who these two guys are already. But now they're going to have to work cold and investigate this one. Well, and there's a, a number of different issues here that I want to get into with this. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, we, we don't want uh, the, this young man who was killed to, to just be a statistic. I mean, he's, uh, he was 19-year-old. He was a student at Brock University uh, in studying medicine, wanted to be a doctor, uh, had incredible marks. Apparently, he was an, an athlete of some uh, magnitude as well, well-liked by everybody. This is not a bad guy who was hanging around on a Saturday night. This is a guy who just came out of a, a service at his local mosque and was heading over toward a variety store and saw an altercation and decided, maybe I can do something about this. So this, this, this is bad on, on so many different levels, Ross. He sounds like the sort of young man any parent would like to describe as their child. Mm -hmm. and, and he's lying dead. The question is, why? How come? I mean, we're seeing, as I said, a rash of these going off. These, these gangsters now... They know that they can carry knives, they can carry guns, because they're not as likely to be stopped by the police, because the police get complained about if they go about doing their job. But you know what? The police are the community. This young man was that community, trying to look after his community. 
Uh, and I think, you know, we're going to have to take a long, cold, hard look at how we're giving the police the tools and the abilities to manage this, because there's someone lying dead here. Uh, with somebody else walking now, there's two guys walking around with a gun who are involved in a murder, and they're just walking around. And uh, I think it's it's time for the community to get a little bit upset about this and start dealing with some of these uh, some of these criminal problems, these shooters. And, and listen, I don't take any solace in the fact that uh, the you know police will say, well, some of these uh, this is the ninth murder, the ninth death in Hamilton this year. Uh, that these are targeted. Targeted doesn't mean anything. I mean, that that may well mean that they know who they're shooting at right now, but they don't know who's else, who else is going to be impacted by this. Uh, we've had other incidents right now. There's gunplay going on in neighborhoods, Ross. And and at what point do we say we don't want this happening? What time do we say this is intolerable for us? Right now we're simply saying, well, let's police do their jobs. But there's another element to this that you and I have talked about in the past. Police start knocking on doors or start asking people, and the next thing they know is, hey, get out of my face. I have nothing to say to you. And it's very, very difficult to try to resolve a case like this if nobody wants to come forward with evidence. Well, I will tell you, in, in the days of not that long ago, three, four years ago, one of the first things police would look at, they'd put the, everybody on, on the force in that area would look out, they'd go back, they'd look at their information. Anybody ever stopped any two people who look like this? When did you stop them? Where? They look geographically, they look at the descriptions, and you know what? Sometimes names come up on that, especially if that's someone's area. We don't know, but if that's someone's area for drug dealing, the police would know who they are and have them on record. Uh, so let's hope the police get to this one fast. My understanding is that there's some video in the area as well. Let's hope some people come forward. This is another issue. Is the community going to come forward, people who know who these two guys are? And I suspect people know who they are based on the description. You know, ponytail tied up on top of your head and another shorter bald guy. I, I suspect people know who they are. Are they going to drop the dime and call the police or crime stoppers? Well, I'd like to think the answer is yes, but we don't know anymore, do we, Ross? And and I think of a related incident. Huh? You and I, I think, talked about this on my program some years ago. Uh, it was a Sunday morning again, uh, right around Victoria in Maine, not too far from where this incident occurred. And there was a gun, a gunfight right in the middle of the street uh, around noontime on a beautiful sunny Sunday morning. And I know because I remember talking to some of the police off the record because they don't want to go on the record about this, and you know why. And we said we did a, a canvas. We knocked on doors. We talk, he said apparently everybody had their windows shut. They they were in the bathroom because nobody saw anything. Nobody heard anything. How how can you ask police? to do their job when the people of the community don't want to cooperate. Let me tell you, there are a lot of hardworking police out there, uh, Bill. I talked to a few just this past weekend who are covering some uh, rather tight, difficult issues. And I talked to one young copper here in Toronto, been on five years now or so, five years previous experience somewhere else. And he said every time they turn around, people are looking at us to complain at us. They don't feel they're being supported a lot. But, you know, look, t cops are tough. They'll get over it. They'll work within the rules. The community is going to have to raise the issue on this. Uh, but I think we need to take a, you know, a look at what's going on. And, and Bill, I also just want to touch on quickly, I'm sure you wanted to get there, this, this talk about the paramedics not doing their job coming up. Yeah, that's, a, that's an, an interesting wrinkle and rather disturbing aspect of this. Yeah, so, so, let's, so basically what's being said is the paramedics uh, showed up. When they showed up, they didn't believe he was shot, supposedly. They... They told him to calm down. It was probably a pellet gun. Uh, people who were there felt they didn't get him to the hospital quick enough and some issues like that. I'll just say, and you could talk to someone professional who's on the paramedic side, but I know anecdotally that one of the problems you have, if you have somebody who's shot with a small caliber gun, 
and you're wearing winter clothes, it, it doesn't make a big hole all the time. You can't always find the wound all the time. There, there can be very, very little. And it takes time to find it. And the paramedics have got training as to what to look at, how to stabilize, how to deal with someone. So I doubt very much there's any negligence here on the part of the paramedics. I'll just say it's not the easiest thing in the world sometimes. And I know from one cop who went to a scene to do that, he looked at someone for five minutes before he could find a bullet wound. And he was the one who shot the person. He couldn't find the bullet wound. So it's it's a very difficult thing. So hopefully some from the paramedics will speak up on behalf of their their, their guys there. Well, and there's always going to be an investigation, as there is with every incident, what, what happened, how the, the treatment was was given, etc., uh, and and by the way, these are not just people that throw somebody onto a stretcher and transfer them. I mean, they're they're trained in offering assistance on the scene, and and and, and if they can to stabilize individuals, because we've talked about the the role of paramedics, of course, in in crisis situations like this. So we don't know. I mean, I know there have been two what we call, I guess, eyewitness accounts that suggest that paramedics were somewhat disbelieving, and apparently somebody said, I'm not sure if it was a paramedic or not. That uh, that uh, you're not really hurt, you're faking it. Apparently, that's what they said to to young Yosef at the time. But again, at this point, Ross, I just want to caution that that's anecdotal information. We don't know from where it came. We don't know who allegedly said that sort of thing. Uh, we do know this much, though. Obviously, I, it, I think it's pretty sure that that they're going to check this out, and there's going to be a thorough investigation into this. They they will, and paramedics have probably saved more homicides. <laughs> Than, than we want to know about our hospitals and our trauma units for doing it. So I, I think it'll be interesting to see how this story rolls out, uh, Bill. And I, and I really hope that there's a quick arrest in this. I, I'm hoping by tonight at 5 o'clock, someone on your station is announcing that there's been an arrest of two people in this. Because if the community comes forward, there's info there on this, there's video... Uh, these Hamilton coppers will get them. They won't stop. And the video, I mean, we've seen a snippet of the video that apparently is available right now, and it appears it appears as if it's pretty straightforward as to what these two look like uh, because they've got video of them, I guess, entering that variety store, and, it, and the, the faces are pretty evident in that situation. But I go back to my point then, Ross, then somebody's got to speak up. Somebody in the community, you're absolutely right, and you've how many investigations you've gone through over the years, they know who these people are. And somebody has to step up. You can do it through Crime Stoppers. You don't have to jump up and down and say, "Hey, I'm so and so, and I'm the guy who's going to going to testify against these guys." You can you can speak anonymously. Uh, nobody knows. There's no call display on on Crime Stoppers if that's the method that you want to use. And you can just call and say, "These are the guys. Those are the ones that were in that video." And that's all. The, that's what the cops are looking for at this stage right now. They need a leg up in this situation. That's what they're looking for. The forensics will get on that. But, you know, just also, and I know you've talked to Joe Warmington of The Sun about this before in the past. You know, one of the issues we need to look at is the police also need people to be able to testify in court. So the police need to be able to have the ability to offer better witness protection and deal with people and help the people in these really the worst at-risk communities, Bill. I mean, you know, it's one thing for the politicians and the people who are doing pretty well to talk about, you know, police... uh, uh, being bad and uh, complaining about them and everything else. It's something else when you let your kid go to school every day. I mean, we talk about police wives and husbands who kiss their spouses goodbye to go to the job, where that they'll come home. There are some parents doing that in some neighborhoods, sending their kids to school, the things that they have to walk through to go to, wondering if, if their son or their daughter is going to get home okay or maybe run into the wrong thing. So these these are issues we need to really look at as a society to, to clear up, Bill. Well, Joe Warrington and I did talk about this yesterday, uh, just after the incident, of course. Joe was writing a piece for it for The Sun, 
And and what troubled both of us as we were having our discussion yesterday, Ross, is very much along what you and I have just talked about, is that this is becoming a variation on the same theme. Gun violence, which means guns are so readily available right now, and we're demanding more and more from the police. And I guess one of the other questions that we need to ask ourselves, are we giving the police the proper resources to be able to deal with this? Not just to react to situations like this tragic death, but how about to be proactive to try to get those guns off the street in the first place? I talk to police and they say they've got almost zero ability, certainly in the city of Toronto, to be proactive. They're running from call to call to call to call. Their screens would be filled up. They don't have time to say, let's go around this this area that's having a hard time and look for some of the problem people. Or let's look for Billy, who just got out of jail for doing this and that and the other, and make sure he's not up to his old tricks and things like that. No ability to do that, Bill. So, you know, look at policing costs a lot of money. There's no doubt about it. But we have to figure out how we're going to manage that resource to make the community safe. Because I tell you, and Joe will tell you, he has talked to a lot of parents of these homicide victims. He's talked to a lot of them. He has to go and he speaks to them. He interviews them. He tries to help bust these, uh, get these guys busted. And it's just a tragedy for the parents and the loved ones who are out there who are left. You know, look at this young man. He was making his parents proud. And uh, now he's going to be, you know... Buried. 19 years old, Yosef al Hanswawi, and, and the partner of this, let's put this into a broader perspective. Uh, th- you know, this is on the same day that a young man in Oakville was shot and killed uh, as well, and, and police are investigating that circumstance. Uh, this is southern Ontario, and, and, you know, we look sometimes down our nose at some of the U.S. cities where we hear about gun violence and say, well, thank heavens that doesn't happen here. But it's happening here with more and more frequency, and if we're not concerned about it now, uh, I'd hate to think of what's going to happen, Ross. Well, you know, it's, you bring up an interesting point. I was actually just thinking about this as I'm going through my feed and doing some posting on my page about the homicides. There was homicide shootings, stabbings in Toronto. There was, there, there was the one in the Oakville. There's the one in Hamilton. You know, there's just a string with these police forces that have to be able to work together now to cover all this because these bad guys, you know, they transit, they get cars, they get their drug money, they go out do their targeted shootings, they go into neighborhoods, and we need our police forces all working together and being supported. So when I make a call from Halton Region about a murder in Oakville with, uh, with some people I'm looking for, and I find that, guess what, Hamilton police have got the skinny on who the guy is. We, you need that sort of information to run this stuff down. Otherwise, I mean, I can't tell you. I think Joe Warmington, once again, he did a story about how many unsolved homicides there are, which means these are murderers who are running around on the streets. And many of them, Bill, they're the YOLO types. You only live once. They don't care. They'll keep on killing whenever someone gets in their way. And uh, I want to see the police clean it up. I want to see them supported. And I want to stop seeing these funerals for young people. You know, Bill, how many funerals did you go to when you went to school? I know. Uh, one. People one, that you knew were getting killed. Not, not, you know, not this shot. way. Not this way. Not this way at all. But there's so many young people now. That, that that this is what they're doing. They're explaining how so-and-so got shot. This is what they did. They got stabbed over here. There was a, a retaliation shooting here. This gang is over there. Watch out for this area. I mean, this is growing up in our major cities in southern Ontario today. It is. And we've got to get on top of this. Ross, thanks as always. Really appreciate the time today, as always. And go Hamilton Police. Find these guys. You bet. Ross McLean, crime specialist and security expert. Uh, RossMcLeanSecurity.com, by the way, is the webpage. Uh, Joe Rowington writes a good piece about this in the Sun today. You should check out on their webpiece. Our uh, thoughts and prayers 
uh, with the the Muslim community and with the uh, Hanswawi family who are mourning the loss of a, a brilliant young man whose life was taken away much too soon. And if we want to do something about it, it starts with each and every one of us taking ownership and doing what we can do in this situation. And if you know something about this, call the police. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. I can't believe we're still talking about this story. I can't believe the federal government is still doing what they're doing. The uh, government is uh, going to court once again today in this ongoing saga about injured Canadian veterans and compensation for those injured Canadian veterans. Uh, You may remember that uh, the Harper government some years ago enacted a policy in which they decided not to continue with lifetime pensions for injured Canadian veterans and instead offered a lump sum payment and uh, some money that was going to be thrown at some uh, retraining programs and things of this nature. Well, the vets had to go to court. And uh, at the time that the, the, Her- the Harper government made this announcement, opposition parties uh, and veterans groups were outraged, as they should have been. As a matter of fact, at that time, Justin Trudeau, who was then, of course, just the leader of the party, uh, the, a third party in, in Parliament, vowed that if he became prime minister, he was going to overturn this policy. Well, it's two years into the mandate of the uh, prime minister, and, uh, well, they're still fighting this in court. And they're fighting the Harper battle once again trying to maintain that the Canadian government has no moral responsibility to continue lifetime pensions. That may change with the ruling today. We don't know what the ruling is going to be, but the fact that we're even doing this right now is, is I think, criminal. Michael Blaze is the president and founder of Canadian Veterans Advocacy. He joins us on the Bill Keller Show to talk about this. Mike, how are you doing today? Bill, how are you? Thanks for inviting me. Well, I'm glad you've got some time to talk about this, because this, as I promised years ago, Michael, when you and I started talking about this, is an issue that we're not going to let go of until we get justice on this. And the fact that they're, they're still in court, the fact that they still haven't resolved this thing is just tragic. Well, I have to agree. You know, and what we're discussing today is not the merits of the course. It's important for veterans to understand yeah. this. But the obstruction that the previous government put forward in the sense of, uh, you know, this, this, this legal argument on who actually is, uh, decides what the sacred obligation authority is. So it's a, uh, you know, it's process. I mean, it's something we have to acknowledge that has to happen. And during the past two years, as you know, I served uh, for a while anyway, till I was removed on the policy advisory group that uh, discussed this issue. And right now it does not look very good. You know, the government, uh, new government, when they came in, we had uh, high expectations that this lawsuit would go away that the Prime Minister would fulfill the sacred obligation promise that he made to me personally and to all veterans uh, two years ago in August in Belleville, you know, where he came forward and he said he would reestablish the lifetime pension. Well, I can assure you and your visitors or your listeners, Bill, that uh, when I spoke to him, there was only one lifetime pension to be discussed. That was the Pension Act. Uh, I was strong on the fact that there must be equality and recognition of national sacrifice. And at the time, at the time, the prime minister seemed inclined to uh, to believe this, to accept it, embrace his sacred obligation. But two years later, we don't know. And, and you're absolutely right. I don't want to mislead people to suggest that there's going to be a pivotal decision today that's going to resolve this issue one way or another. This is this is a long legal battle and it's court procedure. My frustration, Mike, and I'm sure yours as well. <laughs> is that they're even having this battle. They should have just said, you know what, we're dropping this whole situation. Let's try to find a way to, that's going to resolve this thing to everybody's benefit. 
Yeah, well, that's unfortunate. I mean, I understand exactly what you're saying, Bill, because as an advocacy, we've always believed that the only way that the sacred obligation would be restored was through Parliament, not the courts, but through Parliament. Mm-hmm. And as this lawsuit progressed, I mean, it, it was good for us and, and the sense of advocacy to draw awareness by the public uh, to the public. The fact that we're speaking to this is a testament to that. But the reality is, is that this decision will be made in the House of Commons. And the reality is that every Canadian, you, me, and everyone that's listening to my voice has an obligation to make sure that that sacred obligation is fulfilled by contacting your MP and, most importantly, the Prime Minister of Canada and simply reminding him of the promise, the expectations that the seriously disabled veterans of Afghanistan have, the reason we have voted for him during the past election, and the fact that we have high expectations of full compliance. And we should remind people as well, from a historical perspective, that what you're asking for here, Michael, is really a restoration of the way things used to be. This was a change by the federal government back in the day to say, yeah, we're not going to do the lifetime pension anymore. We're going to do this instead. And you're simply saying, let's go back to the way it was. That was when it was fair. We can talk about the amount of money that's being given out, and that's certainly part of the discussion and needs to be. But there's a philosophical debate that's going on right now. And that debate has to be waged within each and every Canadian's mind. Who are we? What do we stand for as a nation? Well, we send our kids, Canada's sons and daughters, to war. What obligation do we have? Well, you know, I mean, this nation stood on that obligation since Sir Sir Robert Borden made the famous comments in the aftermath of Vimy Ridge. And and successive governments, including the government that ruled when I was injured, who took care of me with the lifetime pension, has obligated that obligation. They have accepted it as, as Canadians as embracing the spirit of this nation. And what I'm asking every Canadian is to do is to exactly that, to embrace that spirit and to reach out to the prime minister and say, damn it, you know, we're Canadian. We don't, we don't compare national sacrifice to negligence on the work site in Ontario. That may be a conservative ploy, but it should be a liberal one. Not when the prime minister Canada made a definitive promise for our vote. And that promise was to reestablish the lifetime pension. There was only one, one pension to reestablish. The pension that I and thousands and thousands of other uh, Canadian veterans have been accorded prior to 2006. Now, all we want is equality and recognition for the sacrifice that those who served in Afghanistan from 2006 onward to be equal to mine. That's the point, equal. Equality. We're not asking for a huge exorbitant amount. We're just asking for equality and recognition of their national sacrifice to mine. And, and I think that every Canadian who, who believes in fairness, who believes in equality, who believes in the standards and pillars that this nation stands upon and was created upon, should rally to the wounded's voice now. And that that they can make a significant difference by just writing the prime minister's office. There's a a number of disconnects here that I I find troubling. And and one of the ones that jumps out at me right off the bat is the fact that we seem to be much more aware now of of some of the trauma that can be a a result of of serving your country in this fashion, Mike. And and I know you've talked to a number of veterans that have returned from those, uh, those campaigns. Uh, and and the we, the physical wounds, some of those are obvious, some not so obvious. 
the, the psychological and mental wounds that can occur. Some of those things are going to be with those people for the rest of their lives. We know more about this right now, more than we ever have, yet now we have a government that's saying, yeah, we're more aware, and we're more aware of the suffering that, that our veterans are going through, but we're going to cut back on the money that's available to them. It just doesn't make sense. No, and, you know, we're, we seem to be working on divergent uh, levels all the time. You know, yes, you know, we step forward, we, we make significant efforts on mental health, for example, to deal with the suicide issue, to bring these guys back into the fold, to, to accord the help and care that they need. And that's all fine. That is part of the obligation. But recognizing national sacrifice is also part of the obligation. And it's a separate entity into itself. And, you know, I mean, the government likes to confuse the two issues. They like to say, well, we're giving this there, you know, so they don't need it there, when in essence they're robbing Peter to pay Paul. And at the end of the day, the veteran ends up having his national sacrifice honored at a different level than mine, even though they may be parody of the quality of treatments that are being provided. Now, you know, we are a nation proud and strong. And we have sent our young men and women to war in Afghanistan for over a decade. Over 40,000 of our sons and daughters have deployed. Many, many have come home mentally traumatized from what they've borne witness to, or in many cases had to do. Killing is not easy for a Canadian. Being in a situation where it's kill or be killed creates an inordinate amount of uh, stress whether it happens as a police officer in Canada or on the battlefield over in uh, Afghanistan or wherever else they may choose to send us. So, so we as Canadians must rally now. And, you know, I mean, we have this court case. Yes, it's important, but it doesn't really matter. Because at the end of the day, even if we win in court, Parliament has to create laws to conform to the ruling. We can, we can circumvent all of this. We can start now. We can write the Prime Minister of Canada, send an email, just title it, Sacred Obligation Promise. If you can't remember what, what the text or what I want you to say is, just say what Mike Blaze said at the Canadian Veterans Advocacy. There must be equality and recognition of national sacrifice, because I can assure you, when he sees that, he'll get the message. Well, and he'll know what of we're speaking. Absolutely. And you, there's another word that you used a few minutes ago, Mike, that I think is very relevant to this conversation, and that's fairness. Because there was some talk uh, about a year or so ago, and you might have been still on the advisory committee at that time, that where the government was looking for a possible solution to this. And, and they said, okay, we're going to take the lump sum payment. We're going we're to reinstate the lifetime pensions. But all they were going to do was take that little lump sum payment that they were offering and divvy it up over a number of months and say, here's your lifetimes. Uh, that, that's not the same. You, you, you know what? They're, they're playing with numbers here. That's not fairness. Well, and it's not fair. Listen, and this is serious, too, because, you know, there are entities within the veterans community who have been fighting for that very disrespectful standard. And I would speak to the Legion, National Council. Most of the, most of the premier veterans organizations gave up on the Pension Act long ago and have uh, thought that the best they could do was get the chump sum award bumped up to parity, the negligence on the work site in Ontario, and, and have uh, created and proposed solutions to the government that that would be the foundation of the sacred obligation. Well, that was not the promise that the prime minister made to us. And when the liberal government came forward, you know, they, they assembled this policy advisory group in order to, to, to follow the prime minister's mandate. But when they did, 
they, they, they invited all these organizations who, who did not want to return to the Pension Act and did not put that forward, despite the Prime Minister's promise. Now, now we're confronted by a situation where, where the government has uh, proposals that have been put forward by very powerful entities within the community that are saying, oh, it's okay, you know, the, the new guy's national sacrifice isn't as worth as much as the old guy's national sacrifice. So we'll, we'll, we'll give them 360 grand, you know, and if they want a pension, they can divvy that out over the course of their life. Well, I have two words for that, all and the S1's crap, because this is not what was promised nor does it reflect the obligation that we have as a nation to our kids when we send them into hell. And the reality is, and we've borne witness to it, we have seen our young men and women come home bereft of limbs, bereft of souls, bereft of minds, needing serious help. We have seen suicide run rampant within our military and veterans community. That's the reality. That's the reality of national sacrifice. And, and I... I truly believe that every Canadian, every Canadian who's listening to me now understands what we're up against when we say that this government has to respect it and that it's our duty as the community, as the nation, to reach out to the Prime Minister of Canada to tell him our expectations is full equality to the Pension Act and nothing else will be acceptable. My wife and I were up in Ottawa a week or so ago, Mike, uh, for a great cup. But, I mean, obviously, we stayed downtown for the uh, the festivities. And we did v- visit the National Cenotaph, of course, which is the the very site, of course, where Hamilton's Nathan Cirillo was murdered. Uh, and it's it's a solemn place. I know you've been there many, many times. And I don't remember, as, as Rebecca and I walked around there, any indication at all that suggested that, that Afghanistan veterans are second-class heroes. Uh, but that seems to be the insinuation from the federal government when they start fighting battles like this in court. It's sending a terrible message to the people that served. Oh, absolutely. You know, and I, you know, I have many. Uh, you know, I'm older. I have uh, parents of young men and women who are considering joining the forces who come to me and ask for advice. See, do you think that my son should join? Do you think my daughter should join? And frankly, my answer is no. Not until they fulfill the sacred obligation. Not until they deploy your son or daughter and he comes, she comes back wounded as am I, until they have the same standard that I am. I don't think so. Because, you know, while Canada's sons and daughters may be, you know, performing the most sacred and profound obligation to this nation, signing the check, willing to give their life up for you and me to keep us free and safe, our government is not responding in kind. And they are disrespecting that level of national sacrifice and the and the spirit in which our young men and women are are serving this nation. So at this point of time, you know, unless we as a nation fix this, unless we as a nation convince the Prime Minister of Canada to fulfill the promise that he made, you know, I, I find it very uh, sad sometimes. When I see valiant young men and women serving, you know, they'll call up, they're having issues with mental trauma, they've, they've sustained physical trauma, and they're having BS problems with Veterans Affairs Canada being entitled the recognition and acknowledgement of their sacrifice, as was I. And this is ridiculous. There is two standards. There are two standards that have been created by the previous government and perpetuated by this government. And until we we as a nation fix it, those two standards will remain. 
Members of Parliament, I mentioned this on my commentary earlier this morning, Mike, members of Parliament have guaranteed themselves pensions, of course, for their quote-unquote service to the country, and we can debate whether or not they're worthy of it or how much it is. That's, that's a different discussion. But if they're going to hold themselves to that standard, do they not have a, a, an obligation to have that same consideration for people that put their lives on the line and, and in some cases lost limbs and, and are suffering emotional scars for life, do they not have the same obligation to offer that same consideration to them? Absolutely, and that's where they've gone adrift. You know, they put politics over their obligation. They put politics over the, the obligation not only they have, but they have as a party and as a political entity to this nation. Let us never forget, it takes an act of parliament in order to send our young men and women to war. The obligation that they have to care and respect that sacrifice is paramount to what we actually stand for as a nation. It is one of the pillars. And that pillar is now being grotesquely eroded for the past 10 years by the new veteran starter. The Prime Minister of Canada now made significant promises to stop that erosion and plaster up the pillow pillar by by restoring the sacred obligation yet two years later despite the fact that the consultation has been done we're still waiting for equality and recognition of national sacrifice for those who served in afghanistan from 2006 onwards well instead of fighting this out in a vancouver courtroom what they should be doing is drafting legislation in ottawa to offer the same level of fairness and again write your member of parliament call your email do whatever you need to do Prime Minister's office up in Ottawa, the West Block, send your messages and tell them that you want justice and you want fairness for our wounded vets. Mike, I appreciate all the great work that you and others are doing on this. Uh, keep fighting the good fight, and you know that uh, we'll get your back as often as we can. Well, thank you very much. We're not going anywhere until the mission's complete. You so bet. I, I expect we'll be talking again in the future. I think so too, Mike. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Take care. Later. Mike Blay, of course, president and founder of the Canadian Veterans Advocacy. Get involved. Call your member of parliament. Ask for justice. If those members of parliament can give themselves a nice juicy pension after they do their quote-unquote service to the country, what about the same level of consideration for the men and women that pick up an arm and go and defend this country and come back wounded in one way or another? That's fairness. That's what we're looking for here. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Right now, boy, it's been a busy few days in Washington and surrounding areas, uh, what they call the, the, the uh, well, the, I guess, Action Central, really, uh, down around Washington and through Virginia, etc., CIA headquarters, etc. Uh, on Friday, we saw Michael Flynn pleading guilty to lying to the FBI, uh, pleading guilty to one count of that, and now we're told he is cooperating with the Mueller investigation. Uh, Donald Trump has already reacted on Twitter, as we expected he might. Uh, his lawyer has said what some people consider one of the more bizarre defense uh, approaches in recent years, really, uh, taking all the way back to Watergate days, to try to get some handle on exactly what's been going on and the ramifications. We are pleased to welcome Laura Babcock back to the program. Of course, Laura, following this story, and uh, she is the president of Power Group. Laura, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thanks, Bill. I, I know that you uh, brew a nice big cup of coffee and an offer to watch the Sunday morning political shows, as, as we all do. <laughs> 
Uh, it's 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 getting more and more bizarre. And, and before we get into into the the Flynn thing for a second, the the, the offshoot to that that I wanted to touch on first of all was uh, a quote from one of the Trump lawyers, John Dowd, who says the uh, president cannot obstruct justice because he is the chief law enforcement officer under the Constitution. The insinuation of that comment is just outlandish. It is, but it's not the first time that we've heard it. Remember the old Nixon idea that the president can't be a crook, this idea that they're above the law because of the high office. If the, yeah, hold. the quote that was from the Nixon-Frost interviews. If the president does it, it's not against the law. Exactly. So that idea has been out there before, and it's, of course, been challenged both uh, you know, by many legal scholars, I think they still call it a legal thicket of sorts. It's a difficult thing to understand where presidential powers exactly end when it comes to the Justice Department. And so what you see, though, with the example that you brought up from what we've been dealing with the last couple of days with the president's lawyer, Dowd, is damage control. It's absolute panicking damage control to try to bring up that idea of Trump can comment on any case, because he, in fact, is the head of justice, ultimately, uh, and so that can't be obstruction. What he's trying to do, Bill, is cover up for, or at least backtrack, try to protect them from that disastrous tweet that was sent out the other morning. And they've gone so far as for, I think, John Dow to try to fall on the sword for Trump and say, no, no, he wrote the tweet, when, in fact, if you look at the language in the tweet, you know, what lawyer would, first of all, ever put his client in that kind of legal jeopardy of obstruction of justice by admitting that he knew that somebody had lied to the FBI, and B, even the legal language, the verb tense on pleaded to pled is not something a lawyer would ever write, and C, apparently he's never written any of Trump's 35,000 tweets, but he wrote this one and no other ones, and so because none of those things stuck, because people looked at it and said there's too many reasons to believe Trump wrote the tweet, now they're coming out with, well... You know, he can comment on anything he likes, and it's not obstruction of justice. So this whole idea of bringing up that Nixon idea is just trying to backpedal and cover themselves on this horrible decision. But is this not just another example of Trump, as you say, backpedaling on an issue and, and basically rewriting history from six or seven months ago in, in, from his previous comments and simply said, forget those, those are fake news. Those were his quotes. Those were his tweets. Well, it was very painful. You mentioned the Sunday morning shows. If you saw the two guys who worked for Trump's campaign, who just wrote a book about the campaign, Corey Lewandowski and the other gentleman, and when they were asked about the Access Hollywood tape and Trump's attempt at saying that it didn't happen, though it might not be his words, it might be some kind of a conspiracy, after he did a video confession admitting to it, uh, you saw his most loyal, ardent supporters, people who said that he can tear their face off and rip their face off with rage, but he deserves perfection. I mean, it was, it was painful to watch how loyal they are uh, to this individual, but they could not get away with saying that, oh, no, there is some doubt about that Access Hollywood tape being his words. The, the one guy finally had to admit it. No, no, that was Trump. And, you know, you could see the tell, the way he licked his lips. He was very nervous that his audience of one, his boss, would see him say that. So, I mean, it is, the whole thing, uh, Bill, is a bunch of people lying about things that doesn't make sense if, in fact, the president has done nothing wrong and there is nothing to anything to do with Russia, then why all the lies? And I think that that's often we see in public relations and in cases of this nature. The actual crime, the actual potential 
you know, working with Russia on sanctions or whatever else that people think might have happened might not even be illegal. It might not even be a big deal. It might be totally justifiable. And there are legal theories that justify it. But it's all the lies that are stacking up. Uh, and then these attempts, as you say, at trying to revisit history, rewrite things, issue denials after you've admitted things. I mean, it's just a big mess of messaging. You and I have talked in past conversations uh, about a hypothetical situation where uh, Trump is a, is a power group uh, client. Uh, and again, I, in real life, I would never wish that on you. But uh, but, <laughs> but, if, <laughs> <laughs> but if that were the case, Laura, one of the things I think that'd have to be job one when you sat across the table from this guy is that the first question is, why the obsession with Hillary Clinton? I mean, once again this weekend, this was all about Flynn uh, copping a plea taking the the count here about the investigation continuing, yet somehow he brings Hillary back into this. Well, I wouldn't even need to ask the question. I think it's apparent he uses Hillary as raw meat for his base. I mean, one thing that got him elected was the hatred for Hillary Clinton and all of the Clinton legacy. And there's you can say there might be some misogyny in there. She was a bad campaigner, all the rest of it. But the fact of the matter is, is that one thing that unites the Republicans other than tax cuts for the wealthy seems to be a hatred of Hillary Clinton. So whenever he's feeling the pressure, whenever he's feeling the pinch, he just calls her a liar, calls her crooked Hillary, asks why the FBI isn't ruining her life like they're ruining his good buddy Flynn's life. So he will go after Hillary any chance he gets to divert attention from wrongdoing on his side. It's worked for the election. It's worked in the last year. So I would uh, I would need to ask them that as my client. I would say, however, uh, you know, we would have to discuss whether he had the capacity of getting out of his own way and shutting up on Twitter. And I think the answer we all know to that would be no. So, you know, he is unmanageable, obviously, from a PR communications and now would seem even a legal sense. But in the in the context of bringing back the oldies, but the goldies again, he's after James Comey once again this weekend. Oh, sure, because you know Comey said under oath that Hillary Clinton was interviewed by the FBI, but they did not see that she was lying. They had no evidence of lying. So when he is in the position of trying to bring up Hillary Clinton's sins and try to equate them, you know, this this equivalency game they play with what Flynn has now confessed to. Uh, you know, he has to impugn the integrity of the FBI because the FBI is saying that Hillary didn't do what Trump alleges she did. So he said that the FBI's reputation's in, in tatters, which got a lot of people very angry this weekend. Uh, and he's going after Comey. I think the other thing for people who don't play on Twitter like we do, Bill, to understand is that James Comey, who rarely tweets, tweeted out, I think, the best application ever of a Bible verse I've ever seen, where after Flynn pled guilty, he tweeted something from the Old Testament about how truth like a river flows. You know, in other words, uh, it's coming out. You can't hide anymore. It was a pretty powerful trolling move on Trump, and so he probably got under Trump's skin with that tweet. But once again, it's it's going after the messenger, and in this case, it's Mueller, and it's the FBI, and it's the ongoing investigation. He insinuated, of course, through another tweet that the FBI is actually under investigation now for their poor handling of the Clinton thing. Is there any basis in, in any of these? Well, I think that we all saw James Comey, between a rock and a hard place, make it worse on himself. I mean, those those press conferences he did in the final days of the campaign were just bizarre. And it seemed like he was flipping and flopping. And so 
I'm sure that there are people out there who look not at Comey's record or Comey's character, but Comey's choices during those few months and think, what on earth is going on at the FBI? And there's other stories this weekend about um, some FBI agents and their, their feelings about Trump. And so there's no doubt in the FBI there are people who don't like Trump. There might even be some personal vendettas. But does that have anything to do with the Mueller investigation? It really doesn't. But Trump will do what he's always done well which is he attacks. He attacks and defines his op- his opponents. He did it with little Marco, and he did it with low-energy Jeb, and you know he does it with anybody, crooked Hillary. He will find a label, he will push that label, and he will try to discredit people. Most people, when they're in any kind of you know public relations or political fight, they tend to try to define themselves. Trump just goes right at the jugular and defines you before you get a chance. So he's trying to do that with the FBI. He will... Uh, go after the FBI in terms of its abilities, in terms of its its authenticity, in terms of its agenda, anything he can to give some sort of cushion around what Mueller is clearly driving to. Think of it this way. If Mueller comes out with something serious on Trump or Kushner or Bannon or anybody, a top level, something that that makes it sound as though Trump might not have won the election all on his own without Russian help, that would make... Trump look as though he wasn't legitimate, which obviously is a big concern for him. But what it would also do is it would confirm so many news stories that have been called fake news. So if, so if Mueller comes out with something serious, the best thing Trump can do as the kind of proactive guy he is, is to discredit the FBI in general, including Comey, including Mueller, so that people will look at it and say, well, huh, I don't know if this is a fair conclusion Mueller's reached because I don't think the FBI is fair to Donald Trump. And if he can get us thinking that way, he's distorting the narrative. But he's getting his base thinking that way. But does he really need to do that? He's preaching to the converted, isn't he? He is. But he's, uh, you know, people say, you know, 33% strategy. His ratings in Gallup are as low as they've ever been, except this is before, of course, the big tax win on Friday. Um, and, and I think that Trump is so buoyed by that tax win, he's even using it in his, his support of Roy Moore, the, the alleged child molester today. Um, so the, the tax win is probably going to bring Trump back in grand glory. Uh, and unless the midterm elections, the Democrats take the power in the House, there won't be an impeachment. The Republicans got what they wanted from him, which was the tax cut. So, so they're all happy campers over there. And so they're just going to run on economic recovery on Wall Street, on all these other indicators of Trump's success. His base will, of course, lap that up and defend him in any other in any other context, but it's the economy, stupid. You know, if Trump can float enough discrediting of FBI and, and Comey and make it up characters and a bad play and give everybody nicknames and create this sense that there's it's a war between them, it's not about actual justice and criminality, it's a war. And then people will say, well, hey, you know, Trump's side of the war is doing better on Wall Street. So, you know, I want money in my pocket. I'm going to go with Trump's version. That's the whole idea of gaslighting, is he can create a version of reality that isn't real. But if he's good enough and consistent enough, which he absolutely is, he's a communication master, uh, then what happens is that people start to say, well, you know what, if it's their side or that side, I'm going to take the side that benefits me. And the truth doesn't matter anymore. The deal with Flynn is, is fascinating on so many different levels. He pled guilty to only one charge, which begs the question, what does he have that Mueller could use at this stage? Well, that's what's interesting, is that if you looked at the spin coming out of Trump camp this weekend, they said the fact that it was such a low-nothing charge, 
And we know that lying is not really a big deal in the Trump orbit. They don't really care about lying. Um, so it's like, ah, they, all they had on him was lying. You know, same with Papadopoulos, big deal. Who cares? The thing, though, is that with, with uh, Flynn, there seems to be a preponderance of uh, very suspicious activities uh, through all of his consulting and with the Turkish government. And, and there's so much there that it would hard to believe that the FBI doesn't have a lot more they could pursue. So it looks like a very, very sweet deal for him, meaning that he must have a bigger fish that they're after. And that could only really be Kushner, Don Jr. or Trump. So it looks as though the FBI is temporarily or maybe permanently not looking at some of the other things they may have on Flynn and saying, hey, you better serve us up one of these bigger guys. And, and I think that's how most people are reading it. This Trump spin is that small charges because there's nothing there. I think most people are reading it and saying small charges because there's a much bigger fish that Mueller is after. But is there a timing element here? And we, we I guess, put this in context of you mentioned Watergate at the beginning here, Laura. That took three years of investigation before the Senate actually started to get down to hard and fast uh, hearings about this. And, and the John Deans and others started to come forward, the Colsons and so many others. Uh, we don't know where we are on that spectrum yet. We don't. And Mueller has been absolutely phenomenal in 2017 of keeping that very close. Uh, it's amazing that he is controlling these rollouts of these these big, you know, the next person who drops. It's almost as though he's mapping it out, you know, and that is, I think, giving people a lot of comfort that there's an adult with serious skills and lots of power, you know, really looking into all this. Trump may be guilty of absolutely nothing, and his team might just be incompetent and a little sleazy and lie a lot, but maybe there's nothing there. And we will find that out from Mueller. The problem is in 2017 is that we don't have a lot of patience. We don't have three years of waiting. I think people falsely think that some big Mueller charge is going to end the Trump presidency. I don't think that's true. I think the only chance of impeachment would come from a Democratic-weighted Congress, and that's a midterm electoral issue. It's got nothing to do with any kind of criminal thing coming down. The odds of you know Trump ever facing criminal consequences, I think, are very low. This is more about politics. It's about narrative. It's about trust. It's about fatigue, how long people can handle this investigation before they start to just ignore it. And I think that's where Mueller's been very clever, is that he seems to drop these big bombshells. Uh, you know, it keeps the momentum going. It keeps people on edge. It seems like a, he's playing a very masterful cat and mouse game. And, and so we need to, as a public who are seeking justice and truth, need to let the professionals do what they need to do at their pace. But from a from a timing perspective, more globally, it all comes down to the midterms. All of this matters when it comes to the midterms, because that's where the balance of power rests. And those who are looking for that big win, that big splashy headline, just in time for those elections, uh, I think have to be cognizant of the fact that I don't think Bob Mueller has that as a priority. Uh, he's, a, he's a law enforcement official. He's looking to get to the truth. And it may take a year, it may take two years. He's not sure, and I don't think he has that 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 midterm headline and deadline in his in his scope right now. No, he doesn't. It's going to take work. You know, this drip, drip, drip. Even if there's a bang, bang, bang at the end of the day, we saw in the in the elections, you know, uh, just this past November, a democratic sweep of upper, lower, middle houses, state houses, mayors' jobs. Basically, you had the Democratic Party, or at least the anti-Trump vote, came out in force. And so I don't think that people should hold their fire if they want to change the balance of power in Washington, waiting for Mueller to come out with some great, 
you know, some great surprise. It's going to take the hard work it always takes in elections. And when you have an unpopular president, often the midterm election is where there is that blowback. I think a lot of Republicans voted for that that billion dollar give to Trump. Trump's family alone, apparently, is going to save a billion dollars on the on the uh, death tax, on the transfer tax. So, I mean, they, they gave Trump a big, a big, beautiful thing. They gave their donors a big, beautiful thing. And I think many of them held their nose and did it because they knew that if they didn't at least have that in the midterms, they would be completely crushed by an anti-Trump uh, Democratic vote. So, yeah, I don't think anyone should be waiting. As, as interesting as this Mueller investigation is, it's like a nonstop mystery novel that keeps giving you a new chapter. Uh, it doesn't it's not going to necessarily equate to any kind of criminal punishment for Trump or any real electoral consequences unless people mobilize on all of these other fronts. Laura Babcock from Power Group. Thanks as always, Laura. Great talking with you again today. My pleasure, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.